Brain Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the medtech industry. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Philip Adamson, who is the Divisional Vice President of Global Clinical Affairs and the Chief Medical Officer for the Heart Failure Division at Abbott, where he's responsible for the global development of their programs. Dr. Adamson has also been involved in developing cardiovascular training as well as serving as the principal investigator for multiple clinical trials throughout his career. We're really thrilled to have you here today. Welcome, Dr. Adamson. Well, thank you, Julie and Amy. I'm the chief medical officer here at Abbott. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Adamson, our listeners love to hear about our guest backgrounds. So can you tell us more about yours and how you got to the position of chief medical officer for heart failure at Abbott? Sure. Thank you, Julie. And, you know, it has been a, a, a remarkable journey, frankly. It, it started uh, years ago when I became very, very fascinated by the cardiovascular system, even in college and, and, and before. And uh, as I went through medical school, it was clear that that cardiovascular specialization was where I was, I was headed and uh, had the great opportunity to have some research experience early in my education um, that led to a master's degree in cardiovascular physiology. And then subsequently uh, was uh, very fortunate to have uh, National Institutes of Health funding to start my career, academic career at the University of Oklahoma. And so that was available almost immediately as I walked into the faculty there. It was clear there was at the time some very big gaps in terms of disease management of people with chronic diseases like heart failure. And so our task was to set up one of the first disease management programs in the country back in the, oh, 1994, 95 timeframe. And disease management kind of got in my blood. And all of the research, all of the things that I was doing, basic science-wise as well as clinical science, led to uh, the development of not, not only therapeutic delivery devices that could be implanted to help people either prevent sudden death or, or, or correct underlying abnormalities in the electrical system of the heart, uh, but to take the information from those devices and, and make that actionable, makes it make it understandable, but remotely obtainable. And, and that focus really stuck with me throughout uh, the development of career and, and as a result was uh, uh, invited to be a principal investigator of several clinical trials to develop both intervention devices as well as diagnostics. And the diagnostics uh, devices really did uh, 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 represent a unique and, and remarkably powerful innovation and intervention. And uh, the development of the, the CardioMIMS heart failure system through the CHAMPION trial, which I, I served as co-principal investigator with William Abraham from the Ohio State University, uh, led to FDA approval of that as the first diagnostic that was fully implantable and uh, provided remote information from the pulmonary artery to help manage patients with heart failure. And so, so when that then evolved into a commercial product and, and was it was obvious that we were just beginning uh, the company that acquired that St. Jude Medical invited me to be a, uh, a medical director in charge of the development of that product and subsequently with the acquisition of uh, St. Jude by, by Abbott I, I was uh, uh, again given a grand opportunity to be the chief medical officer of the heart failure division here at Abbott in which we have uh, both CardioMEMS Centromag uh, uh, which is a, a temporary cir- mechanical circulatory device as well as uh, HeartMate 3 which is the the really the only uh, uh, chronic left ventricular assist device to provide mechanical circulatory support in patients with advanced heart failure. So it's 
been a remarkable experience, quite frankly, and and uh, really kind of keeping the nose to the grindstone led to opportunities that I was very fortunate to be able to take advantage of. I love that you started on the clinical side and now have, you know, uh, come over to the, the, the dark side of the industry, if you will. You know, I think that's a really unique perspective that you bring. It, it is. And, and, you know, frankly, I'll, I'll, I'll make a comment about that. I, I, I'm still Phil, you know, and, and uh, I'm still a scientist. I still see that putting patients first and, and innovating to improve the patient experience as well as the physician experience is the only way to, to innovate. And so even though, you know, the industry and the sponsors and industry personnel are considered to be motivated by, by uh, you, you know, selling things, uh, it turns out I have a unique opportunity opportunity to be part of this industry and yet still be able to focus on the outcomes of patients. Absolutely. And that actually brings, you know, brings up the topic of innovation. So over the years, there has been quite a bit of innovation in the heart failure space. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, specifically what Abbott is doing to innovate in the area. Well, I appreciate that. And it's, it is true. I mean, heart failure for the longest time has been considered to be a uh, uniformly deadly and hopeless disease. Simple things like management, simple things like applying medical therapies that have been proven to be useful as well as disease modifying have been challenging over the years. And so I think, I think um, you know, the perception of heart failure has led to a sort of um, a, a resignation, essentially, that patients will inevitably be put in the hospital, patients will inevitably progress and patients, you know, despite what we do, will be high maintenance, uh, difficult patients to manage. Over the years, we've seen a lot of innovations from medications to devices to prevent sudden cardiac death to devices to correct electrical problems in the heart uh, in general uh, to devices that diagnose and monitor patients. We've seen uh, when patients do progress to an advanced heart failure status, we've seen devices that are remarkable. We've seen, for example, our heart made three devices, a left ventricular assist device. That, that, that's, a, that's a pump that's implanted in the heart and, and helps the heart circulate blood to the body. Um, and, and, and you can imagine that that's a very just a high risk environment, but one that uh, is, is very um, deadly, honestly, until we, we implant the assist device and, and, and our, um, the innovations and, and evolution of that technology has been amazing to watch. I remember the first iterations of these devices coming down the, the pike, and it, it was certainly not the right uh, uh, check of, uh, they're not the right uh, selection of patients. It was not the right device process, but persistence and innovation led to a, a remarkable opportunity for people who would otherwise die and, and uh, decreasing the post-operative complications of those devices um, really now rivals the outcomes of, of transplants. So, you you know, to in, even in my, my lifetime, which is, has been now quite some time, but even in my lifetime, I've seen remarkable innovations for this chronic disease and so much hope now when 35 years ago there was none. It's, it's, it's very gratifying to see that happen. We know you have a clinical interest in developing remote monitoring technologies for heart failure. Do you think remote monitoring for continued patient care is the future of medicine? And if so, why? I do. I, I think that remote monitoring achieves several different things. One is that 
we only send, spend a sliver of our time, of the patient's time, with the patient. And, and being physically present with the patient in a clinical encounter, even if you see patients once a week, is just a very minor period of time in their life. Most of the badness that happens with heart failure occurs outside the office and, 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 and outside of face-to-face encounter. Then you couple that with the, with the confines of, of, of COVID-19 and the continued pandemic. The, the, the opportunity to acquire information that's useful to manage patients that might be even more useful than what you would acquire in a face-to-face encounter, but to do that from their home without them requiring, a, you know, without requiring them to, to, to drive an hour or so to get to the office and sit in the waiting room with a bunch of folks that could could have COVID nineteen, and I mean, I mean, the whole the whole concept of traditional medicine has been rocked at its foundation given the pandemic that we've experienced. Therefore, I think that the uh, opportunities to virtually manage patients, both from a virtual encounter over a cell phone, but maybe more importantly, the ability to gather trend data and information physiologically that tells us exactly what's happening in their underlying pathophysiology physiology is incredibly important. And and not only that, it's now been proven in multiple prospective randomized clinical trials to improve outcomes, decrease the need for hospitalizations, improve quality of life. And it's been done now in several countries of the world so that it does transcend sort of the medical culture that's that's bound by borders of countries. Uh, so I think that there's a, there the, the, the future has been permanently changed, honestly, by this pandemic. And if there's any silver lining from the horror that we've had over the last couple of years, I, I think it would be that virtual medicine is now here to stay. Uh, the ability, again, to have high fidelity, high quality information to inform medical decision making is required. And uh, certainly that's what we've driven over the years to, to achieve. Switching gears a bit, you've been active in clinical trials work throughout your career, we've, we've read. And we have many listeners who are clinical trials professionals. And we'd love to hear any advice or best practices you may have? That's a good question. I think uh, um, there's there's a lot to that question, and I, I, I could spend a fair amount of time on that. But I, I think that probably the most important issue is to be as collaborative as humanly possible as a sponsor with the investigator. And collaborative meaning, you know, exp- uh, giving a clear expectation, a list of expectations. So for example, if, if one goes to a local principal investigator and asks, what are the elements that a sponsor will look at to decide that you're a, a, a really good partner to be a part of a clinical trial? Most of them would say, oh, I, 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 if I enroll a lot of patients, which is a component certainly, but is not the component. I mean, it's great to enroll a lot of patients, but you also have to follow the protocol, not have protocol deviations. You have to have timely reports. Uh, timely filling out of the forms and all the stuff that goes along with doing a clinical trial, um, in, in encouraging follow-up, right patient selection. There's a lot of stuff that goes into the matrix of elevating a center to a, a, a sort of a center of excellence in a sponsor's mind. And, and most people don't know what's, what's, what's looked at. Even simple things like uh, time from invitation to contract act- activation, time to first patient enrolled. Those are all things that are in- 
incredibly important to make sure that clinical trials are done properly and in a timely fashion. Uh, so I think being able to uh, even articulate those concepts as expectations from a sponsor perspective is 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 very important. The other the other issue I think is that 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 is has always been important has kind of been the focus of of, of attention lately is the improvement of inclusion. Inclusion is incredibly important how you how you involve patients in a clinical trial. For example, if an innovation is being tested in a in a population that allegedly represents the population that the innovation will be marketed to, then it needs to represent them. Uh, we, we, for example, uh, in, in a trial called the Champion Trial, under-enrolled uh, females. And it appeared as if the intervention in the Champion Trial was not as effective in females, not, not because it was not effective. It was because of the under-representation of, the, of, of females in the trial. Um, another example would be uh, the use of isosorbide dinitrate and hydrate alazine fixed dose in, in patients with heart failure was tested in a large group of veterans uh, in the VHEF trial and was effective, but was remarkably effective in those of African descent, somewhat underrepresented. So a trial called AHEFT was performed, which demonstrated just this amazing effect in patients of African descent in this country with heart failure, a 50% reduction in mortality. So had those, had that population not been represented, that that idea would never have flourished in the hypothesis hypothesis would never have been developed. So I think I think there's ways to do that. There's ways to do that in terms of regional selection of, of sites in which that are involved in clinical trials, expectations, again, of the entire cohort of clinical trial uh, sites to uh, be inclusive and to uh, not only follow the protocol, but to adequately represent the population. There will be regulatory consequences in the future of not providing a, a population that represents the, the general folk, the group of folks that have the disease that's targeted by the innovation. And so I think there's a, a lot of incentive by, by sponsors, uh, for sponsors to, to become creative in how to become inclusive. Uh, so, so again, there's, there's a lot of stuff essentially that goes, goes into how you conduct a, conduct a clinical trial and uh, how you select sites and how that collaboration can be meaningful for both sides and be successful for the principal investigator as well as the, the sponsor. You brought up this whole idea of inclusion that's really important, you know, as we start, as we think about clinical trials moving forward. And I understand that Abbott is doing some really unique work and and putting some really big dollars behind ensuring that clinical trials moving forward are equitable and and including the right people. So could you tell us a little bit more about that initiative? We have recognized clearly that um, it is our responsibility to do what we can do in our world to improve um, this problem of healthcare disparity. And frankly, it, it's it, when, when you really delve into uh, what that means, healthcare disparity, it's, it's frightening. For example, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, dependent upon the zip code uh, of which you in which you live, there's there's a uh, up to a 13 year expected life lifespan difference between two zip codes in the same city, 
and and you know much of that is is because of access to health care of financial disability of, of of other trust issues and, and things it's 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 frightening and and we looked at it at Abbott said what can we do to help this problem and one of them was to provide funding for fellowship programs as well as educational programs at historically black colleges and, and universities which uh, we recently announced gifts to encourage uh, disparity in health care as well as uh, encourage uh, improvement in enrollment in clinical trials um, but we also have pilot studies and uh, pilot programs in which we're looking to um, essentially develop research programs at institutions that serve the populations that are traditionally underserved so so there's there's a lot of moving parts here but the bottom line is that if if a person uh, is being recruited to a clinical trial by someone that doesn't look like them or someone that doesn't understand their their culture it's very unlikely that there will be trust enough between that encounter that the individual will volunteer for a clinical trial and I think that 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 is 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 a key element of how we move forward is to is to really go where the patients live go where the providers are and build excellent programs that can uh, live in in those areas uh, so so we have multiple different ideas about how to improve um, the clinical trial recruitment to improve clinical trial development and clinical center research center development and all of those are are I think multifactorial and really our attempts at changing the things that we have control over we can't boil the ocean we can't you know uniquely and, and on our own solve the problem but I think we can do a very good job of taking care of the things we have control over and frankly it starts with just awareness I think um, knowing that we must represent the appropriate uh, number of women for example in in a clinical trial uh, that's targeting a specific disease process other other underrepresented minorities like uh, African Americans or Hispanic patients may have a very high prevalence of, of the target disease in their population. And if they're not in, in, enrolled in an innovative trial, uh, we won't know if, if the innovation is applicable to, to, to the entire popu- population. So, you know, again, we at Abbott uh, first started with, with the question, we, we started by recognizing there's a problem, obviously, as it did everyone else. But, but the other issue was really what can we do effectively uh, within the scope of our control to improve the outcomes. So we're starting with clinical trials, starting with clinical trial research areas, trying to ensure that all of the clinical trials that we do are representative of the populations that are that are being studied. And then um, uh, we're, we're tracking to see if that actually does translate into an improved application of new and novel innovations that are recently approved by the FDA in this country. So, so those, those are pretty exciting things, honestly. And I, I think that, you know, it, it uh, represents, I think, our dedication education to uh, improve improve health outcomes in everybody. So I had the opportunity to listen to you speak on a panel, The Future of Everything, I think it was put on by the Wall Street Journal. That was very future forward and looking ahead at, you know, what's next. And so I'd love to get your perspective on where you think we'll be with heart failure in five or 10 years from now. Like, what is your vision and what would you hope to see for those patients? There, there is, um, I think, 
the only limitation will be the limitation of our imagination. And, and I, I, I believe that, that combining technology, technologies like remote pressure sensors or remote sensors for analytes in the blood that can be done continuously with no, not, non-invasively, uh, you know, so, so sensor-based technology with interventional technology like biventricular pacing systems or leadless pacemakers to medical therapies all of all of the the amazing innovations that we have in our, our hands right now uh, I think will be melded together by data management and advanced analytics I think the advanced analytics allow us allow us as physicians if we really recognize the limitations of a human being it does allow us to see things that we can't see and it's not having a machine do our job it's actually giving us a tool to allow us to uh, take off the blinders we can't can't, we can't see everything. Uh, uh, however, a computer program that's designed for advanced analytics can see a lot more. And, and I think that when you put then a disease management process for a dis- chronic disease like heart failure, then a multiple system, multiple sensor, multiple intervention uh, array will allow us to uh, more carefully uh, aid in diagnosis, more carefully aid in appropriate interventions, and do all that remotely. But but I think most importantly, quite frankly, the, 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 we have to evolve into into allowing the most, how shall I say, vested and important workforce in healthcare. We have to allow that workforce to be involved, and we have to let them get to work, and that's the patient. They, the patient wants to be in control. Um, they don't want to be beholden to the physician. I've, I can't tell you the number of times in my practice people have told me that they're, oh, their, their grandchild is graduating from high school or whatever, and whatever the event may be, and they would love to go, but they're not going to go. And I'd ask them, why? Well, Dr. Emson, you know, that's, that's going to be 200 miles from you. And that would break my heart, you know, that I, that I had this paternalistic process that made the patient dependent completely upon me. And then, and the and the geographic location to me. When one is able to remotely monitor a patient with multiple sensors and allow that process to evolve, the patient now gains control of their lives, and they can do things like go to see their grandchild. Simple things like that. And and I think the freedom that that gives it cures a lot of the ills that come along with a chronic disease. May not may not you know may not take heart failure away, but it certainly takes away a lot of the things that decrease quality of life associated with the chronic disease. And so I I, I honestly think that the that, that patients are incredibly primed and ready to be involved in their healthcare and to for and it is our responsibility to evolve the things and the technologies that we have. To allow them to to be effective and gain the control that's lost by chronic diseases like heart failure. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Adamson. That's it's really important information. And you know, one of the things that we love with this podcast is we've created a, a communication channel to share such important messages. And we loved sharing your your thoughts today. We have one more fun final question for you. Since you are here on the Morning Fix, we would love to know how you get your day started and when you, and what you do for your Morning Fix. 
<laughs> well, thank you. It, it, um, well, I, I, I think that there's a, um, I have a routine, which has been kind of evolved over, over the years, but it, it, it is a very quiet time with my coffee. I do start with coffee and uh, it, it is a, a, a time to allow my thoughts to settle and, and get started for the day and, and energize and be without a screen, be without a phone, but be just, just listening to birds, etc. I'm very fortunate to live in Austin, Texas, and you know I can sit on my back porch, and and it's just a remarkable experience in the earlier hours of the morning. So I I start by just in, introspection, reflection, qual- calming my spirit, and having some good coffee, and it's a great a great way to start the day. Thank you, and thank you again for for sharing your your thoughts. We're really uh, looking forward to sharing this episode, and I think it'll do a lot of good for a lot of people. So thank you again pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you've been enjoying this series so far and please be on the lookout for more interviews from medical technology leaders. And thank you for tuning into the Morning Fix by 510K Cafe. 